and we know why he wants to see Fred Hampton put in jail. Why do I have a lot of arrests because of harassment? Why is that harassment? Because the people that harass me, they set up this problem in order to exploit me and other people like me. And why they want to get rid of me because I'm saying something that might wake up some other oppressed people. And if all these people ever get together, then these pigs that are exploiting us, we'll be able to run into the lake. That's why they want to get rid of us. Welcome, my people, to the first episode of How We Breathe. I'm Jonathan Stiff, National Organizer for Bold, and we're so excited to be here with you all. On How We Breathe, we'll share intimate conversations with the voices that don't often make it into the news. We explore how young leaders are building on the legacy of Black resistance while finding new political tactics to meet this moment. And we go intimate. We share the rituals, practices, and ancestors that have carried us forward, the dimensions of self-growth that are the seed of our collective transformation. Listen as we breathe. Today, we're headed to Chicago to meet with Richard Wallace. Richard is an organizer with Equity and Transformation, a Chicago-based grassroots organization founded by and building power for system-impacted individuals. We connected with Richard at our annual national gathering in February at a panel discussion about Judas and the Black Messiah, the 2021 film chronicling the life and legacy of Fred Hampton. We'll also hear from Fresco Stees, artist, cultural engineer, and designer. These two Chicago organizers are the living lineage of freedom fighters who work beside Fred Hampton and Mama Akua. After the gathering, we reconnected with Richard and got into a larger conversation. He told us about his mother, a force in the Chicago community who served as a prison organizer for decades. And here's where our story starts. I began going to the prisons with my, my mom around third or fourth grade. And I was addicted, I couldn't stop going. There was all the brilliance in the world all the, you know, the, the black identity that I needed was right there, right? Um, the wisdom, the, the knowledge was all there. So I would sit in the rooms with people that I later found out were the leaders of, of street tribes in Chicago. The, I mean, the heads, like the people that founded and started these organizations. I think earlier on in my mom's life, like she was deep into religion and Christianity. You know, I think that Christianity became a refuge for her um, when she was healing. She was pushed out of church after church after church because she wanted to minister. She became ordained as a minister and was denied. You know, every church closed their door and wouldn't let her preach because she was a black woman. And so she ended up finding um, an opportunity to preach, but she had to do it behind the prison walls. Um, and so she was in at Stateville Correctional Facility um, in the 90s, preaching behind the prison walls. She really thought that she was going back with the, with the Bible, trying to organize, you know, uh, currently incarcerated folks to, you know, Christianity. And what she ended up getting is organized to a broader vision of religion and spirituality. So as Richard is coming of age, he's finding conflicts between his parents' teachings and the educational and social environments he's placed in. The first time I got incarcerated, was it was definitely race uh, involved. First time I got suspended, it was, you know, lack of infrastructure to hold people that 
or dealing with tension, specifically racial tension, right? And so the response by the state, by the schools, etc., was that incarceration was necessary. And when you're incarcerated, I think it, you understand that you're you're in bondage, right? Like you understand that you're incarcerated, that you can't, you're not allowed to get free. And so, and you also feel like, oh, this is a consequence of the said action, right? But when you come home and you're incarcerated while you're free, it's a whole different set of consequences, right? I internalized what they identified me to be. There was a number of coping mechanisms and alcohol and drugs was like a core component of my life from the age, from, from my introduction to streets to the end. Um, I was never comfortable with myself in it. Um, and so I had to drink something, use something consistently to continue to wear the mask and to act like I wasn't harmed and not unravel the, the trauma, right? It was like, no, I'm not traumatized by the police beat me up. No, I'm not traumatized by this, you know, being incarcerated for two and a half years as a teenager, right? Like, no, I'm not traumatized by this. Roll the blunt, pass the, pass the bottle, be going. You know what I'm saying? And it was just a nonstop cycle where it was just like, you know, it got to the point where my family didn't want to be around me. At this point in Rich's journey, his mother once again becomes this North Star, pointing the way to the histories and teachings he was exposed to as a child. February 21st, 2006 was like one of the most important days of my life. It's a day that it was like, for me, everything changed. Um, I, I had called my mother. She knew that she had planted these seeds in me a long, long time ago. Um, and that day I called her and I was like, Mom, I'm done. I'm ready to go. I can't live like this no more. Um, you know, it's bad. Um, and she said, well, so are you ready? And I was like, I'm like, I think so. She's like, because your people need you. And I, she had no idea. None of this stuff was going to happen. Like, I didn't know nothing about heat. I didn't know none of, none of that stuff about bold, about movement, and none of that stuff. I hadn't really applied any of the knowledge that I had from my younger years in my adult life. It was just more or less streets and incarceration and more streets and more incarceration. Just that trying to find myself within the madness. So I take a bus, and this at this point I was living out in, in Wisconsin, and I was just I was desolate. I was I was at my bottom. I was at my worst, and I took a bus and I turned myself into a treatment center, and that was the first day of my sobriety, and so I've been sober since, right? I think that's something important to lift up, and so you know my mom came to pick me up, you know at the treatment center, you know my mom was just being mom like hey. And she gave me two albums. She gave me uh, Yolanda Adams Believe, and she gave me Dead Prez. And so I'm sitting up in the treatment center. This is when you had Disman still, right? Like, I still had a Disman, I think, at the time. And I'm, like, going through the spiritual journey with Yolanda Adams, and I'm being politicized again by Dead Prez. I started writing poetry when I was at my bottom. You know, I started writing. I, I used to... I was a I was a great rapper in the streets as well. So I think that was like one of the things that excelled at. Like I would get a drink in me and smoke a blunt and I could freestyle for like twelve hours, right? Like, like I was at least I thought I was great. I have no idea what I said, right? And I'm glad none of those recordings are around right now, right? But 
poetry just slowly became my resilience practice. I would write, I wrote a poem called, you know, um, One Gram, and it talked about alcohol and addiction and selling drugs and using drugs. And like, it talked about everything. And I started performing that that piece. And I got the type of mom when it's like, oh, you got a talent? Well, you're going to do it at the Tan reunion. You're going to do it at the picnic. You're going to do it at, the, at the, this, that, and the other. You're going to do it at, the, you know, she was working at the AIDS Foundation of Chicago at the time. So she's like, you're doing it at the gala. You're doing it at the, at the this, that, and the other. So she just started putting me on wherever she goes. Like, you see my baby? He can do poetry. Do a poetry. You know, do a song. So I would do it. You know, I'm staying in the treatment center. I meet a dude named Jason Perez. Um, and he was like definitely one of my spiritual guides, I think, in early life. Uh, he introduced me to, you know, I'd already been reading a lot and, and I was super politicized, but then he introduced me to Bell Hooks, uh, Patricia Hill Collins, um, Audre Lorde. Um, and so I'm like, who is this dude? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, and we just grew a really tight bond. Um, and we were connected at, a, at the hip for a number of years and we ended up building out a rap group called BBU. So I went from like literally being homeless to playing stages on Lollapalooza within three years. And so I know that my ancestors were holding me up the whole time. It's impossible. You know what I mean? Like literally it's impossible. Like it was my mom saying your people need you was like a legit calling. I don't try to understand it. It just is what it is. You know, and, and, and for the first time in Jason, what I saw was like a black man free from the tropes identified for black men, free from the boxes that were identified for black men. Sobriety and, and poetry are just like two pieces that, that formed me um, and then prepared me for bold. I worked in the ball community in the city of Chicago doing HIV prevention counseling and testing. I was the first person to tell 40 or 50 young uh, queer black men that they were HIV positive for the first time. And I was the one who counseled them through that. And so they used to call me uncle because <laughs> I was I was also the condom man. So I would go to the club and hand out condoms and all of it. You know what I mean? And like we we built deep bonds, um, specifically with the, the pre and post counseling for, for HIV testing. And so I began to advocate within the HIV prevention world around like, yo, like, first of all, it's mostly all black, young black queer folks that are coming in here HIV positive And all the leadership is not young black and queer. Right. So where are the, the institutions that are serving these people that is led by these people? Um, because I believe that they will come at it with a different approach. Right. And so I ended up organizing my way out of the <laughs> public health field very quickly by asking those questions. Right. And I found um, I found organizing, you know, right after that. Um, and organizing in the temp labor sector between black and brown laborers and then went on to be the the worker, the, the deputy director of the Worker Center for Racial Justice. And um and like I think through those experiences, I was like, I really and, and then also my, my entry to that is that I went back to college um and studied sociology because I was always a fan of theory. I mean I love I mean some people don't I love the the, the Meads, the the Bois, the Collins, the I mean I I want, you know, this the social forces and you know, the different, I, I really was just like, I studied sociology to put me back together, to really understand what forces were at play that broke me apart, um, and really be able to identify what are the institutions that have to change to keep me together. This is where Richard is faced with yet another challenge, a need to find his identity within the work he's given himself to. 
I breathed liberation and I was completely unliberating myself. Like I literally was embodied. I couldn't, what did I think? I don't know. What do I like? I don't know. What do I enjoy? I have no idea. What I, I love fighting system, you know, dismantling white, white, white supremacy. And, but what do you like? God didn't put me here. My ancestors didn't put me here to just be in service to everything external to me. I am, I am in, um, Oakland for my first time ever in Oakland or in San Francisco, one or the other. I was over there. Um, where the weather is not really logical, <laughs> where I brought all shorts and realized I needed sweaters. Um, so <laughs> this is in the Bay Area in California, right? And um, I'm at this convening and I'm listening to Steve Pitts and John Powell speak, which are two people that I was like, oh, wow, you know, that was Steve Pitts and John Powell. And I see this lady walk by. I see her talking to, to my boss at one point in time. And I'm like, who is this? I was just like kind of like a mover and a shaker. Like everybody knew who Denise was. I didn't know who Denise was though. And so somehow I'm talking to D'Angelo standing outside of a door. This is my old boss. And Denise comes out and is like, you need to go to Bold. Like, just like that. And I was like, I don't know what Bold is. And, and like basically she was hinting to D'Angelo, make sure he puts an application in, right? So I put the application in. I didn't really know what bold was. I didn't know nothing about centering, none of that stuff. I was like, I know white supremacy and I know how to dismantle. You know what I mean? I know how to organize, you know. Um, and so I went to, uh, so I, I applied and I got a phone call back from this person. And it was Denise. And on the, in the interview, I was just kind of like, also she caught me off guard. I was like, I was parking my car and then I get the call. So I wasn't like, I wasn't prepped, you know, none of that stuff. So it was just completely off the cuff. And then she was, and then I think following that conversation, I got invited to Bold. Um, and Bold, um, for folks who haven't experienced Bold, it was everything I needed right when I needed it. You know, um, it was a break. It was five weeks, four or five weeks of intensive uh, training. So I thought I was going there and I was like, Wait till you see the strategic plan when I get up out of here. Like, it's going to be off the chain. We're going to get straight to the core. We're going to have the targets laid out. We're going to have, you know, like, we're going to have tactics and all of that. And it was all about, I mean, they broke me down. It was the first time I was in a room full of, you know, uh, black people who were crying, who were vulnerable, who really gave me new possibilities about what my identity could be, right? Like, where I could, where I could be in the world, where I could fit in the world. It was like I'd never seen this wide array of black identity in my entire life. It was opening and being held while you're opening. It also taught me how to hold. Even though I had all my experiences that I didn't know how to hold other black men in this work. Bold just became, I think, that opportunity for me to to tap into me, which is something that I hadn't tapped in outside of like the earlier sobriety moments. And I'd always question, like, what can I add to this space? I saw people that would come to the space, identify the gaps in the space, and complain about the gaps being there. I came into this movement, identified the gaps, and built an institution or an organization or a movement that could fill it. Before we move on, here's what you should know about the organization Richard helped to found with and for formerly incarcerated Black people in Chicago. Equity and Transformation, EAT strives to uplift the faces, voices, 
and power of individuals that operate within the informal economy in the tradition of the Black Panthers. EAT became an intervention, a necessary intervention to ensure that the movement was made whole. Um, it was about bringing people like me to the table. It was about, you know, what we consider the, the, the informal economy. Our mission is to build social and economic equity for Black informal workers. Um, informal workers are a diversified set of economic activities, enterprises, and jobs that our folks engage in in order to survive. It is essentially where we make lemonade out of lemons, right? Historically, where we've made lemonade out of lemons. It's it's the end result of, of, of 500 years of, of, of oppression, um, exclusion, violence, and trauma, right? Identifying who the most oppressed is essentially for me is about who are the people that are furthest away from the formal economy, right? The formal economy is what, under capitalism, citizens in the United States or people within the United States, they have to exchange their labor for a wage. And so when you have populations in, in the city of Chicago where, uh, like West Garfield Park, you have extremely high rates of unemployment paired with a racial wealth gap. And one of the unique statistics, I think, in West Garfield Park is that, like, 84% of young African-American males, and I'm uh, quote me on this, 84% of young African-American males aged 17 to 24 are unemployed. That same exact demographic has the highest risk for being offenders of homicides and victims of homicides, right? There's 700 murders occurred in the city of Chicago last year. 79% of those uh, homicide victims were black people. And so in order to get to a vision of safety, a vision of community, um, like they, those folks got to be organized in our movement. Um, and those people were me at the end of the day. EAT's policy victories were made possible through many years of people-powered struggle through BYP 100 and Charlene Carruthers shutting down Chicago after the death of Laquan McDonald through the successful passage of the Safety Act led by Asada's Daughters or the amazing work of the Chicago Torture Center. They are all a part of cumulative efforts that led to this moment. Some of our campaign work was... Uh... HB 1438, which was a recreational cannabis policy. And I saw that as a labor fight. I felt like the cannabis occupations had already been filled. Um, one thing that we noticed about Black informality is that things that exist in the informal sector um, for Black folks aren't fixed. They often migrate from informal to formal. If you look at number running in the lottery, if you look at bootlegging alcohol to alcohol manufacturing today, you see high rates of Black activity in the informal you see that the second the state intervenes and formalizes an occupation, there's a lack of retention in Black bodies, which then a, aids the racial wealth gap, which then aids the unemployment statistics, which then aids the intra-community violence that we see. Um, and so we, we saw the cannabis fight as a jobs fight and that these jobs were already filled and that we also wanted reparations for the war on drugs. And we framed that fight like that. And we want a number of provisions that ultimately would, would lead to a more equitable, a more equitable opportunity for community folks to engage in the cannabis economy. It also led to 800,000 expungements for uh, folks with cannabis of convictions in their background and a number of other, you know, I guess, equity provisions. We are in the second stage of that. We are fighting for reparations for the war on drugs. Like there was a lot of, you know, like there is, you know, reparations essentially is, you know, a guarantee of non-repetition. Is acknowledgement of the harm, 
It is restitution for harm. It's compensation um, and rehabilitation. Right. I think I made there may be another piece that I may have missed, but we didn't get we got some components. Right. Um, one of the big pieces that's missing is that we were able to divert. They had 50 percent of the cannabis tax revenue going to police pensions. We're able to remove that uh, 50 percent and take. And so none of that money is going to police pensions. 25% is actually going into a fund for communities called the R3 fund. And that money <laughs> is actually turning, it actually turned into like a padding of the service sector. Um, and it's, it's financing service programs, which are not community led, not black led, et cetera. So now we're like, okay, since y'all didn't do right with that, we want compensation. We want direct cash payments from those tax revenues going into the pockets of victims of the war on drugs. At Bowl, we define leadership as enabling others to achieve shared purpose in the face of uncertainty. We asked Richard what this means to him. Here's what he shared. I love my people. See, I, I come from a place where you don't, you can't, there was no like, we couldn't erase you. Couldn't cancel you. Like, we could beat you up. You get violated and be brought back right back in the community the next day. Because there was no choice, but we had to see you. There was no, we couldn't create a space where you could be, you could disappear, right? Like you, you were here with us, right? That and and that, for me is like, that's the reality. That and so I think real black love for me, black love is a commitment to the flaws that capitalism has produced in our lives, right? And so I'm I'm willing to you know, walk with people and I, and I and so I think love, real, real, real love. Like I love every member that walked in the door of equity and transformation and every community member that didn't. Um, when I walk into the community, I walk into the community with love. Not with like, who can I develop today? Or like, what, you know, what are the ends? It's just like, yo, I emanate black love. And, and, and I, I think it's helping, it's protecting us. And so really for me, equity and transformation was birthed out of um, my own personal experience. Um, all the work that went into like leading up and my mama, my daddy, my, my stepfathers, you know, I was also, and I think a big part of my story is that I was raised around Mama Akua, uh, Fred Hampton Jr. Like all the, I mean, it was like black nationalists. I went on survival trips, all brilliant. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't the end. I didn't want to just sit in, in spaces with folks that knew it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you get it. Look, why are we here? Like, why don't we go outside and talk to people out there? You know, whatever. They ain't, that ain't doing this. Right. Um, and so I think, you know, bold was one of the places that, like, helped me identify what my purpose was to the movement. And my bold commitment is that I am a commitment to being me without explanation and walking in love with my people toward liberation. And to break that down, it is the, I don't believe in political purity. I believe that people are, are worthy of transformation, regardless of what their, what their faults might, might have been in the past. I can't give up on nobody because nobody gave up on me. Richard has had so many through lines in his life, from incarceration to public health work to life as an artist. And he's still evolving and shedding and walking in his commitment every day. 
at Bold, we call this embodiment. We want to thank him for sharing his story with us and giving us an example of courage and transformation. This is Fresco Steez taking us out. Our existence has been anchored by our ability to advance the oral tradition. As organizers, I deeply want folks to be intentionally invested in doing storytelling, whether that's writing, filming, photography, recording. I deeply believe that we should be telling our own stories. This podcast is a quarterly offering by Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, creating powerful spaces where organizers gather to experience embodied leadership, deeper relationships, resilience, and Black joy. How We Breathe is written and produced by Niasha Lang, edited and produced by Eddie Hemphill.